Technology is great when you remember to use it. I have um, this image in my head of Jesus standing on the side of this, what they call a mountain in Scripture. We wouldn't compare it to the Rocky Mountains. Um, the hill that he's on overlooks the city on Palm Sunday. If you're new to church, it's, it's when they really celebrated Jesus' arrival, as Michael was talking about earlier. And it's uh, five days before the crucifixion. So he's cresting the hill of this mountain, and it looks out over the entire city, and he can see Jerusalem in front of him. And there's lots and lots and lots and lots of sheep. 250,000 male spotless lambs are brought into the city of Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. It's when they began bringing them in for Passover. So from all the pastures surrounding Israel where they were raising sheep, by the way, they raised most of them in Bethlehem. So they were birthed there in Bethlehem. They were raised outside in the pastures in Bethlehem, and then they were brought to Jerusalem for the Passover. So Jesus is crusting this hill, and he looks out over the city, and there's lots and lots of sheep all over the place. A quarter million lambs, spotless males, will be killed that week for Passover. With that framework in mind, go with me to Luke chapter 19 and look with me on the screen, verse 37. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, if I... I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. It's so incredibly confusing. In one moment, the God-man is saying, go ahead, celebrate me. I am worthy of it. You should be cheering loud, and if you don't, the rocks are going to scream. But in the very next moment, he's weeping over the city. It's so confusing. I'm sure the disciples are completely mystified. How does that fit in to what we're looking at this morning and Moses and the Passover? Let's pray right now and ask God for clarity. Father, we want to know how this works in our life. How does this apply to us? So we've just declared that you are holy, you are worthy of glory, you're worthy of honor and all praise, and it's all true. Thank you for the gift of music, because we feel so often that what we say falls so short. So thank you, Father, for giving us the gift of music to be able to express the things that we couldn't otherwise. But we want to know, God. We want to know how do these things fit together, and we need clarity, and so we're asking for something really, really big. How do we understand you better, and how do we understand what we're supposed to do this afternoon as a result of it? and tomorrow, and the next day. God, more than anything, we want to speak into the lives of people who are precious to us and precious to you. So we ask that you would give us clarity, and that will only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit who causes your word to come alive. So we pray for that right now. In Jesus' matchless name, in all God's people said, amen. Isaiah has an amazing description of God. I wonder if perhaps some of you haven't seen it before. Look with me on the screen at this. Isaiah 30, verse 18. The Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits. Now, there's a thought. He waits to have compassion. He waits on high to have compassion on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Those seem like opposites. 
How do you put those two together? Yet that's an exact match for where we left off at two weeks ago when Peter said this in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This book ended in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Both Isaiah and Peter have captured it. They speak of God as this one who waits, this God of patience, who is also this God of justice. And typically, when you and I think of justice, we think of judgment, and judgment makes us really uncomfortable. Kind of makes us squirm in our seat a little bit. Yet justice here is linked with God's enormous compassion and His enormous patience. So think of it this way. If God is not just, He would not be patient. Likewise, He cannot be patient, enormously patient and, and compassionate, if He's not also just. Those two work in harmony. But we know that even though His patience is enormous, patience has to have a limit because there has to be justice. Without justice, patience wouldn't mean anything. There would never be true justice if patience didn't have a limit. How do I understand that thought? We likely would all agree that ultimately, all wrongs, all rebellions, all evil has to be dealt with. Otherwise, there's no justice. There's no true justice if evil isn't dealt with. So when we come up against things like we do in this last week, evils all over this world, especially shootings in schools, and it causes us to wonder how in the world can evil be so rampant on this planet? How can a loving God allow evil to continue? A lot of people ask that question. Here's the answer. Because God is incredibly patient. He is patient beyond our ability to comprehend. And Scripture says He's patient because He longs to be gracious, and it messes with our mind. So while His grace is unlimited, His grace is absolutely amazing. Say amen if you agree with that. Amazing grace. And that amazing grace is unlimited, meaning this, you especially need to know this if you're new to church. No matter how egregious your past, no matter how much you have screwed up, God says, my grace is greater than all your sin. I can forgive you of every sin, past, present, future. No matter how egregious your past, He's even willing to forgive evil world rulers, as you'll see in the case of Pharaoh. Yet the reality is there is a time limit to God's grace. So there's no capacity limit, but there is a time limit. So as we saw last week, Pharaoh has exhausted God's patience. He's crossed the line. He has pushed God to the limit, and he's exhausted his opportunity to turn to God because he is so hard-hearted. And when that time limit expires, the price for rebellion will be extracted. So at the pinnacle of Egypt's power, mind you, this is written about Egypt of the Middle Kingdom. What antiquity would say was the most significant time in Egypt's history. In that time, God brings devastation with astonishing intensity. Here's where we left off at. Exodus 11.1, 1, now the Lord said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Uh, by chance, if you weren't here in the last month or two, I, I'm just going to give you a quick brief review of how we got to this point because these previous nine severe plagues have been so intense, they brought us right to the threshold of this moment. And each time with the previous nine plagues, there was an incredible hardening of the heart. But rather than me giving you the summary, you'll get it from King David because King David wrote something far better than I ever could, and he does it in the book of Psalms, Psalm 78, and here's what David wrote about what happened 500 years earlier during the time of Moses. Verse 45, 
He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave also their crops to the grasshopper and the product of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hailstones and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave over their cattle also to the hailstones and their herds to bolts of lightning. He sent upon them His burning anger, fury and indignation and trouble, a band of destroying angels. He leveled a path for His anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave over their life to the plague and smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the first issue of their virility in the tents of Ham. Ham that he's referring to there is the son of Noah, the second son of Noah. Ham is the progenitor, the ancestor of the Arab nation. And David is writing about the fact that the virility of Ham, the descendants of Ham are being destroyed through this plague. Now that's a detail, but here's another bigger detail. He calls them a band of destroying angels that bring this destruction. Let me show you a Hebrew word that represents what's going on. It's in your notes this morning, but you'll see it on the screen, ra. And this particular word is talking about something that's being broken to pieces. Think of a glass being shattered on a concrete floor. That's what's being described here when it says he brought it and he brought fury and indignation and trouble and a burning anger. So David has just said that God has unleashed wrath and he uses four words to describe God's wrath. Collectively, those four words are called a band of destroying angels. In other words, it's a first person in God himself doing it, but collectively he brings burning fury and indignation and trouble together. And you should notice this, church, the destroyer is not a demonic power. It's God Himself. He personally brings it, as opposed to sending the plagues. Let me show you this from Exodus 12, verse 12. Count how many times the word I shows up. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and strike down all the firstborn. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, that's quite different than the previous plagues. All nine previous plagues God had done through Moses and through Aaron, and He sent the plagues. But in this case, God says, I'm bringing it personally. I'm going to march among them. And He uses the Hebrew word yasa, which is a military term, and it means to march forward in military battle. God says, I'm going to march among them, and I'm going to bring destruction. Now, we're just going to touch on chapter 11. Chapter 11 is very, very short, but it gives details of what God's going to do. If you ever wanted to memorize a chapter in the Bible, memorize chapter 11 because it's only 10 verses. It's a short, short chapter. But let me show you. We'll pick it up in verse 4. And here, when you see this, Moses is standing in the palace before Pharaoh. Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I'm going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel a dog will not even bark." whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these your servants, and I think he's looking around in the palace and he's pointing to all of Pharaoh's upper leadership. All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me saying, go out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And it's recorded that after that, Moses left. He went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. There's a staggering display of God's supremacy that he's just described. On the 15th of Abib, which is the month of April, he has just announced that all firstborn humans and all firstborn animals, unprotected by the blood of the Lamb, will die in one night. And all the warnings are done. Previously, God had given warnings in advance so that they could escape in some way. From the hailstones, He said, go inside, protect yourself. But all the warnings are done now. They're not even given a formula to avoid the inevitable. And we get from Scripture an extraordinarily visceral image. 
It appears that these events are recorded in real time, like on ground level, and the groaning and the wailing is so loud and so excruciating that all of history points back to this moment, and God says, it's never been like this before. It will never be like this again. What I'm about to do is so intense, it will astonish people. But in sharp contrast, among those who obey God, there will be such tranquility, you won't even hear a dog barking. In the big picture of what we're looking at here, we're seeing that the power of God which is going to deliver is the same power which is going to condemn. In other words, what condemns one group is the salvation of another group, and it's all connected to the blood of the Lamb, as you're about to see. Now that we've been told what's going to happen in chapter 11, chapter 12 actually details the actual event, and specifically, how they can avoid God's judgment. So these are God's instructions to Moses. They're just going to come up in glimpses here. Here's verse 4. They are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household. Verse 5, your lamb shall be an unblemished male. Verse 6, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it. Verse 7, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses. Let me revisit with you the detail about God saying that He's personally going to do this Himself. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, we looked at this once, look at it in more detail now. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let's pause for a moment. Under the previous nine plagues, Israel was protected through separation. God had them up in the land of Goshen during the hailstorm. When the locusts came, when all the other plagues happened, they were removed because God had separated them while He was gaining the attention of the Egyptian people. But now, with this final act, which brings direct judgment and death, we find that the people themselves have to take a stand just like you personally have to take a stand today. Do you believe God's Word or do you not believe God's Word? They have to take a stand whether or not they personally believe God. When He says it's only by being under the blood of the Lamb that they can be redeemed, they have to take an action. Previously, they've been separated from all the plagues. Now they're no longer separated, they're included. Watch what Dr. Motyer said. This is just back in 2005. He wrote it this way, Previously they had been segregated by the Lord without any cooperative or obedient act of their own. But now, by the command of the Lord, Israel must take a stand, self-declared as the people under the blood of the Lamb. You and I might have to say it this way, they have to own it personally. You have to own your relationship with God personally. They have to own it by believing by faith that God will redeem them. Verse 21, then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the doorpost and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel of the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. I'm seeing echoes of Romans 3.23. Some of you know immediately what I mean by that. Link this with me. It has to be absolutely shocking for Israel to learn that they're in just as much danger as Egypt. Previously, from all God's plagues, they've been separated. Now their lives are at risk as well. If any one of them fails to be covered by the blood of the Lamb, that one is going to be in rebellion against God. And Moses wrote and said to them, the destroyer will come to that house. 
The destroyer will come to every house, but some houses he's going to pass over. And it's only the blood of the Lamb that will redeem them. So even the people of Israel, whom God wants to redeem, they personally have to acknowledge they need the Lamb's blood. In other words, they have to acknowledge that they are sinners. And that's why I said Romans 3.23. Remember what it says? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They rebelled against Moses. They disregarded God's word. They're no different than the Egyptians. We all have sin on us. So even the people of Israel whom God wants to redeem and rescue, just like the Egyptians, they've fallen short. But gratefully, we know a God who provides a way of escape. So He doesn't excuse Israel. He does not give them a get-out-of-jail-free card. They're going to have to demonstrate. They're going to have to demonstrate what God requires. The shedding of blood will keep them from being destroyed. So because God's patience has been exhausted, He will bring justice. And this band of destroying angels will roam throughout the land, and they're going to bring death to every household. Verse 29, now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, and there was no home where there was not someone dead. Can you imagine? I can't. The the final stroke arrives at midnight, according to what Scripture says, and the result is this unprecedented outpouring of grief. Today, modern mathematicians studying the populations of Israel speculate that as much as 44% of the population of Israel of Egypt was wiped out in one night. Let's say they're wrong because to know that, you'd have to know the population of the people at that time and how many children were in each family. We don't know, so let's cut the number in half. 20%, let's say 22% in one night, according to what Scripture says, are killed Millions. And what's up with the animals? Why the firstborn animals? Well, you should know if you went through the study of the first nine plagues that the Egyptians deified the created order. I told you that they made statues of human bodies and put animals' heads on them. Remember the the frog princess? She had a frog's head and yet a beautiful woman's body where they worshipped the creation, not the creator. And so we find in Scripture what's recorded here that they were worshiping animals. They portrayed their animals as deities. And the death of these animals exposed the utter uselessness of their creature gods. No wonder Paul wrote in Romans 1 that we have this proclivity as as humans to worship the created rather than the creator. And Paul wrote in Romans 1, we're all going to stand accountable before God because he gave us this amazing creation to evidence the fact that he's a creator, and yet we in turn worship the creation instead of the creator. Well, Pharaoh at this point has had it because of the death, and we go to verse 31. Then he, meaning Pharaoh, called for Moses and Aaron at night, I'm thinking this must be like two or three in the morning, and said, rise up and get out from among my people both you and the sons of Israel, and go, worship the Lord as you have said, because in his own household, there's dead people. Leave us. Get out of here. And they're supposed to take everything. They take their their herds. They take all their flocks. They take all their possessions, and they will plunder Egypt, and Egypt will have nothing left. You talk about destroying an economy. Look with me, verse 33, the Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we will all be dead. Verse 35, now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request, thus they plundered the Egyptians. The Hebrew word that's used there means to strip them bare. Anything they asked for, they gave them. So suddenly you have this slave population who has never known a nice change of clothing. 
They've got all kinds of Egyptian clothing now, and they're decked out in jewels, and they've got silver, and they've got gold just hanging from them. And Scripture records that aside from even the women and the children of Israel, there's 600,000 men walking out of Egypt. So with the women and the children and the men combined together, it looks like there's around 2 million people. Chapter 12 ends with an amazing prophecy fulfillment. Look with me at verse 40. Now, the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, and at the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That echoes of Genesis chapter 15, when God said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to look at the sky. You see all the stars, Abraham? Your offspring is going to be like the stars in the sky and like the sand on the seashore. But nevertheless, they're going to become captives. He said in Genesis 15, they're going to serve another nation for 400 years. But Moses just wrote here it was 430 years. Why that specific detail? And then Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 that it was 430 years later. Where's the extra 30 come from? From the day that Jacob entered the borderland of Egypt and he stopped at Beersheba and said, God, really? Is this really your plan? And God said, go. That extra 30 years comes from Jacob's time in the land of Egypt while he's still alive, while Joseph is still alive, and you add that 30 to this 400, and you have 430 years to the very day. Verse 51, and on that same day, the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. So this mass departure finally takes place. The Lord brings Israel out by their divisions, meaning the 12 tribes, and they're brought out in martial array. And surprisingly, the journey begins on Shabbat, which is remarkable to me. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that the Pharisees came up with all kinds of rules about the Sabbath, that you could only walk a mile, and you couldn't carry any baggage or any burdens with you, and yet God Himself has them walking out on the Sabbath on Shabbat, walking a lot more than just a mile. Verse 17. Now, when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Most foot traffic leaving Egypt goes to the northeast, to what we think of today as the borders of Israel. For them, it was the borders of the Philistine land. Well, at the borders where the border guard was at, the Egyptians kept a very careful record of who came in and who went out. But when they crossed over into the military land of the Philistines, they were crossing over into war country. It's like going from South Korea into North Korea. Friendly, not friendly. Not harmful soldiers, very harmful soldiers. And the Philistines were specialists at war. And God says if they see those soldiers and they go through the land of the Philistines, they're going to lose heart. So He redirects them, verse 21, the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. Can I just say, very cool. I don't know how many times you've read the Bible. I hope you never get tired of that image. I don't know what you're picturing in your mind when you think of this pillar of fire. But how awesome would this be? We're talking something like a cyclone or like a tornado that's spinning, but it's got more to it than that according to what Scripture describes here. In the daytime, it's a pillar of cloud. By nighttime, it's a pillar of fire, and it's this visible guide that's providing and giving protection as they travel. So check this church, New Testament church. God provides a manifestation of His protection and His guidance just like the Holy Spirit in your life today. The one who's always with you, who does not leave you. That pillar of fire constantly was with them, never left them. You study it, 40 years in the wilderness, they wake up every morning and it's still there. But what about the makeup of this thing? Well, it's so wide that it allows for 2 million people to be underneath it. So think of a stem like a mushroom stem with a cloud over the top that blows out above them. 
This is what Scripture records in Psalm 105, 39. He spread out a cloud for a covering. So like a curtain, why do they need that? Well, the desert is beautiful, and the blue sky is gorgeous to look at, but it is hot, and they didn't have any sunscreen. And God has given them a lot of shade through this pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night to guide them. Now we don't jump over into chapter 14, and we come to verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people, and they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let, the Israel, let, let Israel go from serving us? So Pharaoh's having another temper tantrum, and his aides, his advisors come in and say, well, we got to fix this because we don't want to be making bricks. We need those people who have been serving us. What were we thinking? We let our cheap labor go, verse 6. So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him, and he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. So Pharaoh's looking for any sign that he can possibly recover his slave labor force, because economically, this is going to devastate his nation. So he calls up the Pentagon, and he says to the Pentagon, I need 600 Abrams tanks, and they're going to bring it. I'm not joking with you. Technologically, these are the most advanced chariots of the time. When they say select chariots in Exodus 14, they're talking about chariots that were remarkable, different than any other nation on earth. Militarily, they were the most advanced. They're light, they're very nimble, super quick, but most importantly, they have two occupants on board. One is an expert horseman who can manipulate the horse and make them go any place they want to, but the other one is a sniper, and that sniper does not miss, and he is well-armed, and they are trained in all the military warfare of Pharaoh's army, and that's what he's bringing, 600 select chariots, and he assumes that Israel has run out of options because they're on a dead-end trail, and this is going to be like shooting fish in a barrel. It doesn't take a military genius to see that they have put themselves in a very vulnerable position. They're trapped between two natural borders, water on one side, mountains on the other side. So he's mustering his entire military division, and what the Bible says is he goes after them in hot pursuit. Verse 9, then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea. Well, they're not going to be hard to track. Like, you could track two million people going through the desert. I could. Two million people are going to leave a pretty big trail behind them. Verse 10, as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and he became very frightened, so the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. So you have former slaves who are in serious trouble. And they're doing what they would naturally do. They begin crying. They're screaming out to God. This, this means death for them. Because to the east is the sea, the ocean, the Red Sea. To the south and to the west, all these mountains surround them. And to the north and the northwest, Pharaoh's army has them trapped in a valley. The very route by which they came is now blocked by Pharaoh's army. So they're shaken at the core, at the rapidly approaching chariots, and the people begin crying out to God, and they're terrified. And in the midst of their chaos, while these fast chariots are approaching, their hope completely fades. And when hope fades, what do you naturally do? You turn on someone. Well, they turn on Moses. Look with me. Verse 11, then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I got to say, this is just stunning to me. They're, they're dripping in gold and silver. They've just lived through watching all nine plagues. They know that God has killed the firstborn in Egypt. And they've got new clothing that they've never had before. 
But when things go wrong, how suddenly do we forget? How suddenly the hardship of slavery is forgotten? And they say it's better to be a slave in Egypt than to die in the wilderness? And if you're not familiar with the story, this is just the beginning of their complaints. Were there no graves in Egypt? Now, I know that they're saying that partly because they're scared, but it's incredibly sarcastic. Egypt specializes in tombs. They have lots of pyramids around. And three-quarters of their landmass is dedicated towards cemeteries at this period of time. So what you really see here is despair and hopelessness, but I see zero spirit of fighting. What explains that? Well, the Egyptians have been their masters, and they've been trained since they were children to bear the yoke of slavery. And for all its horrors, slavery does do one thing. It includes this reality that there's a lack of any need to make a decision when you're a slave. All your decisions are made for you by someone else. And so they're completely frozen with terror, with no capacity for anything but despair. And Moses knows that. Verse 13, but Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. All they have to do is be still and be patient and wait on God. If you've ever read that and asked yourself the question, how in the world can Moses be so calm and confident in that setting? He doesn't know that God's about to part the sea. It's never happened before. How can he be so calm and confident? He has the most to lose. No one knows better than Moses the military power and strength of the nation of Egypt. I wonder if you have a Moses in your life today. Maybe you're the Moses to your family. Male or female, it doesn't matter. Or maybe someone has been a Moses to you. They have been so calm and so confident when things go so bad that you look to them and say, that person is a rock. How can Moses be this calm and this confident in this situation? Because he knows he's arrived at a conclusion. Maybe you've arrived at the same conclusion that he arrived at. He believes God all of God's Word, because he's seen God do exactly what God said he would do every single time. Now, what Moses may not be aware of is how and when God's going to do it. As the Egyptians are drawing closer, most likely I'm thinking he's expecting them to be vaporized some way, like they're going to be hit with lightning bolts. I say that for this reason. Look with me at Exodus 14.4. This is God speaking. I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Now, honored doesn't translate too well into the English language. The word kabod is the Hebrew word that's in your notes, and you'll see it on the screen. Kabod is actually talking about something different than what you think of when you think of honored. It's heavy, it's weighty, and it's grievous. So God has told Moses, I am going to break out on them in such a way that they will absolutely know who I am. But instead of being wiped out, they're getting closer and closer. And Moses can see the sand coming up from the wheels of the chariots. And the deep blue waters of the sea glistens in front of him. And the timeless gentle waves of the ocean are slapping against the sand of the shore. And they're not gone because when they look in the waves, all they can see is the reflection of death. And the people are in a panic and they're screaming, have they not followed God's word? Have they not done what God told them to do? Have they not properly spread the blood over the doors of their houses? And these former slaves cannot decide what to do and they want to surrender and they want to run back to the brick pits. And so some are crying out for mercy and they begin praying to God, begging him. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Pause right there. God is saying, stop praying. That's a stunning statement. 
Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch it out over your, your hand, over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. See, there's a time for prayer and there's a time for action. And God has said, stop asking and start doing. As for you, Moses, I want you to form a valley in the water. Now, I'm thinking for Moses, this is a wait what moment. What? Could you repeat that? Nobody's done it before. And God says, I'm going to work through you. Now, while this is all unfolding, and I know many of you know that part of the story, what you may not re remember is this. While all this is unfolding, God is doing more than just speaking. This angel of the Lord in the pillar of fire that's before these individuals, it's on the move from the front of Israel that has guided them to the backside of Israel, and it becomes their rear guard. And I love the image of this. God himself personally stands between Israel and Egypt. Those who are in front are those who have obeyed God, and they're on one side of the pillar. And those who have rebelled against God and defy Him, they're on the back side. Verse 19, the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. So what is light for Israel becomes darkness for Egypt, and what an eerie sight. I, I'm seeing here theologically the double nature of God. Salvation on one side, judgment on the other side. It couldn't be more graphically illustrated in the Bible. I wish some artist would take this and, and render it and put it on paper. This is an amazing image here, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept back the sea by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So with a single gesture, Moses raises his staff, and the Lord drives back the sea. And through the benefit of the nightlight that God has given them through this pillar of fire, they're able to clearly see these walls of water that are on either side of them. And then comes verse 23. And you want to yell out, don't do it, Pharaoh. But he's never read 23, 24, and 25. Verse 23 says, Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them in the midst of the sea. This would be a really bad time for a flat tire. But verse 25 says that's exactly what happens. That God intervenes and He causes the wheels to fall off the chariots. And the chariots sink into the sand. And the charioteers have had enough. We're done. We're going to forget about the people of Israel. But it's too late. Now, while all this is going on, there is unleashed such a spectacular display of thunder and lightning and rain and earthquake that even the most arrogant of the Egyptian charioteers are paralyzed with terror. I know that from Psalm 77. Look with me. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water, the skies resounded with thunder, your arrows flashed back and forth, your thunder was heard in the whirlwind, your lightning lit up the world, the earth trembled and quaked, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. That would make for an awesome movie, would it not? <laughs> we can speculate and assume that Pharaoh's army didn't actually know they're entering into the seabed because it's dark. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But what a fearful sight the first time a bolt of lightning pierces across the sky and lights up the wall of water on either side of them. And they recognize in terror, uh-oh. 
We're going to leave Pharaoh and his army to watch the lightning storm until next time. This is a really good place to ask. Is Egypt in this predicament because God loves them less? Because my Bible says He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So is this an act of cosmic favoritism? Does God love those people less? Is their soul any less precious to them? Check this, church. If favoritism had been the ruling principle, there would be no need for the Passover blood. Or for that matter, there would be no need for Israel to have locked themselves inside their homes on that very night when all of Egypt was screaming. Rather, God clarifies the issue for us in his own statement, and it's very clear in Exodus 12, 12. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. God doesn't say, when I see you hiding inside your houses and I recognize that you're the children of Abraham, then I give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. God doesn't say to them that I choose you because it's you. He says, when I see the blood, when the blood is over you, then I will pass by. The difference is who's under the blood of the lamb and who is not. Who is willing to believe God and obey God's word and who is not. That's what landed Egypt in the predicament that it was in, in this place of judgment. Somebody came to me between services and said, do you think that any of the Egyptians actually hid under the blood of the lamb? Absolutely. Scripture reveals that there were people who were non-Israelites traveling with Egypt and they, with, with Israel when they left Egypt, and they escaped. So they're hiding out in the household. All of that aside, to wrap this up, I want you to hear this very clearly. We took all this time to get to this point. Jesus saw this very thing on the day that we call Palm Sunday. He saw this as the issue Look with me at Luke 19, 41 again. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's why he's crying. It's four days before the Passover. He's going to have the Last Supper with the disciples. We call it the Last Supper. It wasn't for them. On Friday, the Lamb of God will be crucified for your sins and for mine. But here in Luke 19, we're told as he's entering Jerusalem, he stops partway down the hill and he begins to weep. So the same God who brought devastation to Egypt, the God-man, is crying on the side of a hill. And he's not crying over his crucifixion that's coming. We're told that he surrendered himself willingly. Nobody took his life from him. We're told that he's crying over the city. Why? Because it's full of lost people. And they had rejected God. They didn't recognize the time of their visitation. Because the God of compassion and the God of patience knows that the very thing that destroyed Egypt during this time of Moses is going to destroy the people of the city. And this time, the dividing line, it will not be a pillar of fire. It's going to be a cross on a hillside called Golgotha. The cross on which the spotless Lamb of God is going to shed His blood. The very same blood which takes away the sin is going to be rejected by so, so, so many people. They can't accept that He is who He is. So He looks out over the city knowing full well what's going to happen. It's a story as old as time. 
the God of compassion is on display here. And he's giving warning after warning after warning. And patiently he's been crying out because he's not willing that any would perish. That even the most evil and vilest among us, even the pharaohs of this world can be saved. But ultimately, time runs out. So on Palm Sunday, Jesus sees that this amazing grace that he offers will be rejected by many. And God's mercy and patience will demand justice. In his amazing grace and mercy, God is still patiently waiting today. He's still waiting for humans to turn to him. And I'm simply here this morning to ask this question. On which side of the pillar do you stand? More importantly, on which side do you want to be? Because those who stand on the side of God, they live. Those who stand against God and rebel, it will be destroyed. And the primary characteristic of those who belong to the Lord is one thing. They obey what God has revealed. Let's pray. Father, we recognize and we don't recognize this lightly. You have revealed your word and your perfect will this morning that we would submit and surrender to the Lamb of God, that the blood of the Lamb would be over us, protecting us. And yet so many of us want to run the opposite direction. I know, Father, it happens because we want our way, we want our will. We're no different than Pharaoh. So I pray right now for the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit that you would superintend over this place. And if there is any one person who has a heart like Pharaoh, God, that you would soften it in this moment. Make them tender. Draw them, Father. that they would surrender to your will and to your purposes and allow that new beginning to start fresh in their life. Thank you, God, for your amazing grace. Use these truths in our life this week as we take on the responsibilities of this afternoon and tomorrow and the next day that we might speak into the lives of people who are precious to us and precious to you especially as we get ready for Easter and we celebrate. We celebrate the resurrection that gave us life. We pray for this in the matchless name of our King Jesus and all God's people said, amen.